Amen. Good morning, Life Church. Amen. How many of you like the snow? No. I fertilized my lawn yesterday. Perfect timing. You know, it was a little rainy, but hey, you can do it. Just put a garbage bag over your fertilizer. You can get her done. All right. That's my commercial for taking care of your lawn. Because your neighbors do notice. Uh, so does your wife, hopefully. All right. Well, we're going to be continuing with the uh, series in the book of Mark. And I've entitled the message today, How Do You Measure Up? How do you measure up? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have to be in your house today with your people. God, I pray that this will be everything you want it to be, nothing more and nothing less. We thank you and we praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. How do I make it to heaven? What? You can interact with me this morning. How do I make it to heaven? Repent? Believe? How about some good works? Those going to get you there? Well, you can try, but you're going to fail. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So how do I make it to heaven? That is a very important question. If you've ever asked it, and I believe most of us have, you're not alone. That is a question that I believe is on the minds of millions, if not billions of people at this very moment. How many of you thought about that recently? How do I make it to heaven? How can I be assured that I'm going to be in heaven someday? Then absolutely none of you are on the same page that I am today. I'm just teasing you. But I believe it's a very common question. And I think it was also common in Jesus' day. We can look around us and we hear different ideas of how to live life, that will, lives that will be fulfilling, lives that will, will be satisfying. You know, we're told to get in touch with our original untainted inner selves, and that's the language that comes from secularism and humanism. And they state that man is basically good. You're really good inside, but because of the circumstances that you've encountered in your life, you've been damaged but you're basically good. Now, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the heart of man is desperately wicked and continually evil all the time. Wow. That's what God says about the human heart. Now, some believe that they can find happiness and fulfillment and even eternal life through the endless cycle of reincarnation. All things that humans are trying to do to find God. Now, this brings me to today's message, going back to the book of Mark. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for the final confrontation between himself and the religious leaders. The future was in clear view for him as he made his way with his disciples to the place he had been targeting. He had followed his father's plan for his earthly ministry over the last three plus years and was now on the last leg of his journey. And it would culminate with him giving his life as a sacrifice for all humankind. As Jesus and his disciples were walking, a rich young man or a rich young ruler, as he is sometimes called, ran up to him and fell on his knees before Jesus. He asked him the same question that we still ask today. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to make sure I go to heaven? 
And I think it's pretty amazing that this aspect of human nature has not changed over the years, over the centuries. It's an age-old question that we've wrestled with, really, from the beginning of time. We all want to make sure we are okay on some level with God. And here's the story as it unfolds in Mark chapter 10. So follow along with me, please. Beginning with verse 17. Now, as Jesus was starting out on his way, someone ran up to him, fell on his knees and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, keep in mind, Jesus was not saying that he wasn't good. Jesus was not saying or implying that he wasn't God. He was actually doing just the opposite. He allowed the man to call him good. But he said, the only one that's good is God. And Jesus was basically implying, I am he standing before you. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. The man said to him, teacher, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws since my youth. Now, this is the first part of the interaction with the young man. And if the story stopped there, we'd look at this guy and say, you know, he's met all six requirements for all six commandments. Of course, there are 10, but we don't get to those today. But he's got it covered with all six. So if the story stopped there, he measured up pretty well. We like to feel like we're recognized for our accomplishments and our rightness, don't we? I know I do. Now, I recently heard a story about the video game industry. I'm not a gamer. My son is, or one of our sons is. So he would probably attest to this. But when video games were first created, they lacked something that we have come to expect from nearly all games. And that's a high score indicator. How many of you in the 80s, how many of you lived in the 80s, by the way, <laughs> played video games? To me, those were, the, those were the golden years of video games. You know, you had Miss Pac-Man, Pac-Man, Centipede. What are some others? Donkey Kong. <laughs> I was never good at Donkey Kong. I could make it to the second tier, and then I got took out or taken out by the barrels. I never made it. But anyway, the high score indicator. Now, prior to adding the high score, they would get people to put some money in, play for a little bit, and then they'd just walk away. But after they added the high score indicator, people poured money in. More than likely, if you were a teenager, you poured in mom or dad's money. Not many teenagers have much cash on them. So we want something to shoot for. We want something to achieve. We want to get the high score. And I think we have that constant need for feedback. I think one of the greatest disservices that you can do to your kids or to a coworker or a subordinate, if you're a manager, is to not provide any feedback at all. I think negative feedback is better than no feedback at all. Just something to ponder. Now for this young ruler, he had done it all. He had made the high score in following God. He might have said to himself, I haven't committed adultery, check. I haven't committed murder, 
Check. I haven't stolen anything. Check. I haven't told lies about other people or told lies in general. Check. I haven't cheated anyone. Check. And I haven't dishonored my parents. Final check. An interesting note is that all of these commandments specifically deal with our relational obligations to our fellow human beings. The other four relate to God more so. Now, as Jesus listed off, the, listed off these commandments, you can almost hear this guy performing a self-checklist of sorts, feeling pretty good about how he was standing up against the standards of the great Jesus of Nazareth. I think there's little doubt he had heard about Jesus, the miracle, or the worker of miracles, rather, the healer, the guy who stood up to the religious leaders. So when he heard about Jesus passing through, he had to go see Jesus. He probably pushed his way to the front of the line so he could talk to the God-man. But the question for you today, the question for me is, what is the list that you use, that I use, to measure myself and yourself against others or against the expectations when it comes to our spiritual lives? How do you measure up? Does it sound anything like this? Hope you wore your steel-toed boots today. I've attended church three out of four weeks. Check. I've given something in the offering in the last month. Check. Feeling pretty good about myself. I serve in a life church ministry. Check. I don't cuss. Well, at least not that often. Especially not as much as my mom. Actually, I actually have co-workers in here. Check. I don't watch rated R movies. Check. And I even read the Bible sometimes. Wow, I'm pretty good. Check. And on and on we go. We measure ourselves against ourselves or against those who aren't as good or as spiritual as we are. Or so we think. And we always seem to come out on top. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm better than... Now, there's a story that Jesus told to the crowd in the book of Luke. Listen to what Jesus said and see if you can pick out the common theme. Luke 18, verses 9 through 12. Jesus also told this parable to some who were confident that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself like this, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get. This guy was a tither. Pretty arrogant, self-righteous, and condescending, don't you think? But isn't this the attitude that we sometimes have? We probably hide it a little differently than this guy did, but he was really looking religious. He was possibly even looking spiritual. Just like the young ruler, 
He had all the right stuff in all the right places at just the right time. When he measured himself by himself, he made the cut. And we can easily find ourselves in this position if we compare ourselves to others that we think we're guaranteed to look better than. Then Jesus did what Jesus does. He challenged the young man about his life. He thought he had checked all the right boxes. Or did he? Mark chapter 10, verse 21. As Jesus, excuse me, as Jesus looked at him, he felt love for him. Notice how Jesus moved to the next moment. A course correction was coming. This guy had fallen into the trap of performance using external measures. Very good ones, of course. At least six of the commandments. But this had been an issue that Jesus addressed over and over and over with people. And Jesus dealt with this guy gently. Now remember the other times when Jesus confronted the religious leaders. He was not so gentle. He became vocal. He even got angry with these people that told lies about who God really is. They misrepresented him through a false narrative. This guy had fallen into a trap of performance, using external measures to make sure that he looked good. Now, Again, Jesus got very vocal and even angry at the false or the, uh, the religious leaders of the day because they misrepresented God. And they refused to actually care for people. They strove or they strived for position and power. But not this young guy. It says that Jesus looked at him and felt love for him. Now this should tell us, very, some, tell us something very important. This should be our response as well to those who are misguided. We should show compassion and a willingness to correct in love. Now let's continue with Mark chapter 10, 21 and 22. As Jesus looked at him, he felt love for him and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell whatever you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But at this statement, the man looked sad, and he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Now, one thing to keep in mind is responding to someone in love does not mean softening or weakening the message, not telling someone the truth they need to hear. But remember, Jesus was dealing with the heart, and he's still, de still dealing with our hearts today. And he dealt with that from the very beginning of his ministry. And again, he continues to work on us today. Mark chapter 1, 15, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. That was Jesus' beginning of his ministry. Repent, we are to turn from our sinful ways. We are also to turn from trying to earn our way to heaven. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Although Jesus told this man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor, this does not mean that he's asking every one of us to do the same. This story shows us that we must not let anything we have 
or anything we desire to keep us from following Jesus with all of our hearts. Jesus is after our hearts. He's not after our money. The Bible says that he owns it all. It's not like he needs it. But sometimes our money, our stuff, or even another person in our life is given control over our hearts and they prevent us from being as close to God as we need to be. It could be money, it could be a job, it could be a significant other who has spiritual priorities that you don't share. Now for this young man, wealth had become the idol that kept his heart from actually following the heart of God. The external looked great, but the internal was somehow broken. The treasures of this world for him had become his God. And notice how he responded. Jesus gave an open invitation to become a disciple. He measured his response and he decided, at least at that point, to not turn his life over to God and he walked away sorrowful, sad. It appeared that he was choosing his wealth over following God. Now, a question for you, is Jesus here making a statement that worldly wealth is sinful? No. But the attachment to worldly wealth that takes the place of God, that is what Jesus is driving home. That is when wealth or anything else, for that matter, can become sinful. So the big question this morning is this. What are you holding on to that Jesus is asking you to give up? It's a simple question, but it's a complicated response. What are you holding on to that Jesus is asking you to give up? After the rich young guy left, Jesus continued speaking with his disciples. In Mark chapter 10, 23 through 27, it says, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at this, at these words. But again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to one another, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and replied, This is impossible for mere humans, but not for God. All things are possible for God. It's not a matter of money, folks. That's not the issue. It's not a matter of stuff. It's not a matter of people. It's a matter of my priorities. It's a matter of your priorities. What has your heart? What has my heart? So here's a bottom line for you. Never declare someone worthy or unworthy of salvation based on what you see. God provides the way because he is the way. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no person comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Mark 10, verses 28 through 31, Peter began to speak to him, Lord, we have left everything. Sounds a little Pharisaic here. Lord, we have left everything to follow you. Look at what we've done. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. 
There is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, all with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus assured the disciples that anyone who gives up something valuable for his sake will be rewarded a hundred times over in this life. Although not necessarily in the same form. Let's say that I give up a house to follow Jesus. God's not going to give me a hundred houses to replace that. He makes it up in different ways. And it's usually a spiritual outpouring that he brings to our lives. Now, an example of this, someone may be rejected by your family for accepting Christ. And you may lose that immediate family because they share a different religious preference. And they may disown you. They may excommunicate you. But guess what? You gain a whole family of believers. An entire family of believers who will pray for you, support you, love you, care for you. And you get to do the same to them. Now, here's another important statement. Along with these rewards, however, we experience persecution because the unsaved of the world hate God. Ultimately, they want nothing to do with God. Even though they're seeking after something, they don't know what it is, but the world continually re rejects him. I rejected God for years and years and years. But finally, through the kindness and generosity of God, he drew me and saved me. And I think he's done the same for most of you. Now, also in verse 31, Jesus, Jesus explained that in the world to come, the values of this world will be reversed. Those who seek status and importance here will have none in heaven. Those who are humble here will be great in heaven. The sinful condition of our world as a whole encourages this confusion of values. We are bombarded by messages that tell us how to be important, how to feel good, especially how to feel good about ourselves. And it completely discounts our spiritual condition and the fact that we are so often disconnected from God. So consider this. Those who humbly and faithfully serve God and others are most qualified to be great in heaven, to actually be there. So let me ask you, What's holding you back? Is it the love of money? It could be. Is it your job? Could be. Is it a relationship that you know is not right? Is it hurt and pain from your past? Is it unforgiveness? Is it bitterness? Oh, it's all justified. You can give me 47 reasons why it's okay to be angry and unforgiving. But the bottom line is, if we don't forgive our fellow man, God will not forgive us. 
That's Bible, folks. Whatever it is, God wants you to give it to him today. None of us is capable of, capable of making it to heaven on our, on our own. We have to completely surrender all of our lives, all parts of our lives, to the Lordship of Christ. When we do, we will find completeness, we will find salvation, and we will find eternal life in Him. Let me encourage you to turn every part of your life over to Jesus today. So with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, give me just a moment to allow God to do something in our lives. How many of you are willing to admit that you do not have a personal relationship with Christ today, but you'd like to? Simply raise your hand. Yes, I see those hands. Most importantly, God sees those hands. Everybody repeat this prayer with me, please. Father God, I give my life to you today. I ask you to take my past. I commit my future to you. Come into my life and save me. Change me from the inside out. I receive you as Lord and Savior today. In Jesus' name I pray this, amen. Amen. Heads bowed and eyes closed. How many others of you will admit that you are holding on to something or someone that you know is keeping you from being as close to God as you know you need to be. If that's you, just raise your hand. Yes, hands all over. Father, you see these hands that are raised? I pray that you will continue to work on our hearts. God, allow us to turn everything, every part of our lives over to you. We cannot call you Lord unless you are ruling in our lives. And we need to make you Lord of our lives today. Pray this prayer out loud with me as well. Father God in heaven, I give you every part of my life. Help nothing to hold me back from you. I ask you to be the Lord of my life. Take everything I am, everything I have, every relationship I have, and I commit them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be exposed to your word today. Lord, the work that you are doing in all of our lives, I pray that you will continue until you come back for us. Lord, help us to partner with you each and every day. Help us to be like Jesus. And we pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. Hope you have a great day.